I tell you, when I headed out of the driveway this morning and I saw the snow, I knew that we live in Chicago and that you folks are amazing in driving in snow. This isn't like, you know, Tampa Bay, all right? And I am so grateful that you guys chose to come out on this Sunday. As I was meeting with the team early this morning, I I was just praying and, and asking God and asking Him to bring folks who need their hearts strengthened. People who, wow, need to be nurtured by God's Word. And to be able to refocus by our worship and our praise And I think God sent you here because there's no better place to be able to come together with with God's people and to be able to sing and hear from God. Dave prayed just before I came up. And he just prayed that the, the Spirit would just open up our eyes. And I guess that's my prayer too is that you didn't actually trudge through the snow for, well, that's what you do on a Sunday. But you came to experience an amazing and a wonderful and abundant God. And we trust that will happen. For some of you that haven't been with us, we're in week 16 of our Gospel of John series. As a community, we we meet together in order to worship and to pray and to sing and to open His Word. We are teaching families to know and obey and enjoy Christ. The Apostle John has been giving us snapshots of Jesus. It's pretty cool. As we look at his gospel, we get different views and different perspectives of really who Jesus is. John flat out loved Jesus. And he shows it in his gospel. He absolutely loved spending time with Jesus, and he loves sharing the good news that he learned from Jesus. John's life was transformed. And as a result of that, he wanted everyone that he met that they would enjoy that same relationship he had with his friend and Savior. In John chapter 20, verse 31, we find out that that John writes very clearly what he hopes to accomplish in all of this gospel and all of this good news. He said that he wants us to continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you'll have life by the power of his name. Each week, we watch Jesus and learn from Jesus. Jesus came to earth seeking out the lost and the wandering in order to offer them hope. In John's gospel, we have seen Jesus do some pretty amazing things in these first six chapters. He has met with the religious lost and the lost lost. And he offered them life. He poured his life and continues to pour his life into a group of aimless and confused disciples. And he's building their faith. He heals people physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Folks have had their lives changed once they met Jesus. Jesus also shocked the crowds and angered the religious when he proclaimed that he was the Son of God, that he was the promised Messiah. For the most part, crowds have been enamored now for two years. We saw at the end of John chapter 6 that they wanted to literally make him king. Anybody who has that kind of power, anybody who's able to feed us and fill our bellies, that's who we want. We've been scrapping long enough. We desire deeply just to be taken care of. And Rome just doesn't seem to be doing such a good job. They wanted to crown him king now. But Jesus knew very clearly that was not God's way. Not at the moment. 
Last week, we had a glimpse of Christ's ministry. It was right after he walked on the water and teleported instantly all the disciples and the boat right to their destination. Jesus got out of the boat and walked to the synagogue in Capernaum, and he began to speak. His words last week, if you're with us, and and I would just encourage you, if for some reason you missed last week's message, um, I think it's a critical one in our series, and, and it will help you actually even understand what I share today. So maybe you could go back online and, and pick that up. But, but Jesus drew a line in the sand. It's his third year of ministry. It's the last year that Jesus is going to be on this planet. I don't know, again, if he was getting a little anxious. It didn't seem that way. For us, it would be. But he seemed to be so very focused. And he proclaimed boldly and loudly and said he was the bread of life. He is the only one who would be able to fill the empty void in your heart. The only way to experience abundant and eternal life was, well, with a relationship with Jesus. At that moment, there was a hush in the crowd. There were probably at least 300 or so people. That's, that's probably what a synagogue would fill uh, or, or would um, be filled with at that moment in history. And wherever Jesus went, he packed them in. There was no doubt about that. And there were all these great miracles that had just happened. So So the crowds were there. But as soon as Jesus talked about him being the bread of life, the only way to experience life, both abundant and eternal, there was a hush. They didn't know how to respond. And there was a pause. And we're going to jump into... John chapter 6, starting at verse 60, and look at these 10 critical verses. Amazing verses. I've asked Matt to be able to read for us. So Matt, if you would uh, at this time read John chapter 6, starting at verse 60. Many of his disciples said, this is very hard to understand. How can anyone accept it? Jesus was aware that his disciples were complaining. So he said to them, Does this offend you? Then what will you think if you see the Son of Man ascend to heaven again? The Spirit alone gives eternal life. Human effort accomplishes nothing. And and the very words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But some of you do not believe. Believe me. For Jesus knew from the beginning which ones didn't believe. He knew who would betray him. Then he said... That is why I said that people can't come to me unless the Father gives, me, uh, gives them to me. At this point, many of his disciples turned away and des- deserted him. Then Jesus turned to the twelve and asked, Are you also going to leave? Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life, we believe, and we know you are the Holy One of God. Let's pray. Father, in some ways, these are some of the saddest words in all of the Bible. When people had an opportunity to come to you, they're more concerned about filling their bellies or immediate satisfaction than to understand that the Creator, the Son of God, the Messiah, was in their presence. And they somehow missed how important it was to be in relationship with you. And Lord, as the people started leaving, he went right to his 12 disciples. They stuck around God. They hung around in spite of, well, the quick exit of so many people. Father, I pray that you help us understand today why they stuck around. What was it that Jesus said that kept them? How could we be more like 
those 12, although not perfect, God, we know that, but that we would be like them, that we would trust you, that we wouldn't leave, that we would follow you with all of our hearts and all of our soul and all of our mind. I pray, Father, for all the churches in this area. I pray, God, that you would use your word powerfully and that there would be great songs of praise just shouted all over this area that you would receive great glory today and that your people would leave here ignited and leave their buildings ignited to be able to be salt and light in their world. Lord, the task seems unbelievably hard and long. There's so many people that are running from you, so many people that don't know you, and we know, Father, that you are the one we need to point people to. Give us that courage. Give us that boldness, Father. We also know, Lord, that there's been so much sickness going on and so many broken hearts. Lord, there's some grieving. There's some wondering about doctor's prognosis. There are folks who are struggling with news of even cancer today. We pray, dear God, that you would be a comfort and encouragement, and that their faith would grow in spite of circumstances. Open our eyes, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. John MacArthur, in his commentary at this point, says this, Modern conventional wisdom would suggest that Jesus ought to have done everything possible to exploit his fame tone down the controversies that arose out of his teaching and employ whatever strategies he could use to maximize the crowds around him. But, instead of taking the populist route and exploiting his fame, he began to emphasize the very things that made his message so controversial. At about the time the crowds reached their peak, he preached a message so boldly, so confrontational, and so offensive in its content that the multitude melted away, leaving only a devoted few. As I shared with you, by this time, crowds were the norm. Wherever Jesus went, there were multitudes that wanted to touch him, wanted to hear his words, wanted to be around him. We're going to dig into 10 verses, convicting verses, powerful verses. Let's look at verse 60 first. Many of his disciples said, this is a very hard to understand. How can anyone accept it? Crowds were coming to a place where they couldn't stomach Jesus' teaching anymore, demanding that the crowds acknowledge that he alone is the bread of life, that unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will not have eternal life. Jesus was emphasizing both faith and intimacy. You need the same type of relationship with me, Jesus said, that I have with my Father. They preferred a weekly religion or performance type of a religion. And then to be left alone. They wanted to understand certain rules. And if they just kept those rules, then perhaps, then maybe, you know, life would be okay. Jesus turned all of that upside down. He was aware of their complaining. Look at verse 61. Jesus was aware that his disciples were complaining, so he said to them, you know, I'm going to stop right there for a second. He's tossing out the word disciple a lot. First of all, in verse 60, many of his disciples said, this is just too hard to understand. Now, again, some of these disciples are complaining. To go back to the very basic understanding of what a disciple is, it's a learner. 
really. But there were many disciples of many rabbis during this time. And they would usually hang out with a rabbi, a disciple of a certain rabbi, for about three years. And they would do life with this rabbi. And so Jesus was gathering these crowds, and they, well, they thought they were followers. They thought that they would be called disciples. It's going to be interesting because by the time we're done, Jesus is going to define a little bit better what a disciple is. It's not someone that just casually hangs around with Jesus. It's not someone that kind of hangs out at the synagogue or loves to be around just when, well, there's some action. A disciple is someone who's very different. And so Jesus, again, not pulling back any punches at this moment. He knows they're complaining, so he said to them, does this offend you? And what he's talking about, does it offend you when you hear the message that I said, I came down from heaven? After all, I just called myself the Messiah, the Son of God. So does this message really offend you that much that I came down from heaven right now and I stand before you? Verse 62, Then what will you think if you see the Son of Man ascend back to heaven? The Spirit alone gives eternal life. Human effort accomplishes nothing. And the very words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But some of you do not believe me. For Jesus knew from the beginning which ones didn't believe, and he knew who would betray him. Then he said, That is why I said to the people, Can't come to me unless the Father gives them to me. Whoa. He said, Have I really offended you by telling you that God's my Father? You see, flesh doesn't give life. The Spirit of the living God gives life. I know that some of you don't believe and you don't have faith. And I know that only those who are drawn to me by my Father will be the ones who respond to my message. I get that. Then some of the saddest words in the Bible. Verse 66. At this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. It was a mass exit. There was great excitement when Jesus started talking. Then all of a sudden, folks started leaving. In fact, the scriptures tell us everybody left, except for 12. He said, we're done. Their reaction is typical of false disciples. As long as, they are as long as they perceive Jesus to be the source of healing, free food, and deliverance from enemy oppression, the self-serving disciples flocked to him. But when he demanded that they acknowledge their spiritual bankruptcy, confess their sin, and commit themselves to Him as the only source of salvation, they became offended and left. See, false disciples do not follow Christ because they love Him. They follow Him because they want something from Him. They objected to His words and rejected Jesus. And then verse 67. Then Jesus turned to the twelve and asked, Are you also going to leave? Can you imagine how silent it must have been? They'd spent two years with him. They had seen more miracles and heard more messages than any of the ones that actually had left. And Jesus just looked and said, okay, guys, what's the deal? Are you going to leave also? 
And then verse 68. Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know that you are the Holy One of God. Again, don't you love Peter? Peter was that brash fisherman. But he really thought he was answering for everybody at that moment. He thought it was a no-brainer. Like, Jesus, really? You're asking this question? Come on, we're sitting here, aren't we? Where are we going to go? You're the only one we know that can give life. Jesus, that wasn't such a good question. Look at us. Wow. You know, I look at that, and I look how fast Peter answered, and I look at even the context of it, and, and you wonder, oh, that is so amazing. The majority of the people leave, but there are 12 guys that said, we know where life comes from. So what kept the 12? And what was Peter actually saying? Well, it's true. They had experienced and seen and embraced Jesus. There was a relationship. They understood the life-giving words. But more than that, I think they recognized that their lives were being transformed. They had been hanging out with Jesus for two years and they were seeing things differently. They weren't seeing things perfectly. They were seeing things differently. In fact, I believe what they were saying is that they were all in. You've heard that term. Peter was saying they're all in. Now, in Matthew 16, in Mark 8, and in Luke 9, we have a little bit more understanding of what happens right after this. Remember, I've encouraged you to pick up a harmony of the Gospels, which means how do all the Gospels come together? When does Jesus do certain things? But between John 6 and 7, a lot happens, okay? And we're ending 6 right now. Jesus is asking them a really hard question, are you going to stay? And Peter says, yes. We are all in. Now, ministry kind of escalates at this time. As I mentioned, by the time, and, and next week we hit John chapter 7, but there's a lot more going on. And that's important for you to understand. Jesus literally begins to clarify this message, this divisive message. So I'd like you to turn with me over to Mark chapter 8. Because this is a message that follows right after what Jesus just said and will help us understand a little bit more the context of what Christ was saying. In Mark chapter 8, starting at verse 34. Let me quickly put it in the context. Jesus at this time continually talked about how he was going to die that there's going to be great suffering, that the disciples are literally going to be scattered. And it was at this time, it's classic, that Peter walks up, the same guy that just spewed out these beautiful words, puts his arm around Jesus and says, Jesus, let's just, you know, talk buddy to buddy here, all right? All this talk of suffering, all this talk of the cross stuff, all this cross or, or talk of this dying stuff. You know what, Jesus? Let, let's not go there. You know, there must be a different way to do this. And this is the line, and you can see right up if you have your Bibles open in Mark chapter 8. He looks at Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> You know, I mean, they're good friends, I get it. But even my best friend, I don't think I've ever called Satan. You know, I mean, it just, there's, a, there's something about like, okay, it's not really a good thing to call somebody. And really what he was just kind of saying is, Peter, 
that what you are suggesting is so contrary to what God wants. And so Jesus right away goes deep. And he starts to describe what a disciple is. In verse 34, Then calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said this, If any of you wants to be a follower or a disciple, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. Oh, Jesus clarified this message. He's calling the crowds all around them. He would love to have more people be considered disciples. The disciples were there, but he basically said this, you're going to need to do three things if you want to be called one of my disciples. If you want to be all in, if you recognize how hard my message is, I'm going to make it really, really simple for you. And the message is actually the same thing today, folks. It says, first of all, turn from your selfish ways. You have to be less selfish. And this is actually in the middle voice, which in Greek, it's an amazing way for every one of us to understand this, that it's just not a you thing. This is you and God together making a choice, Him giving you power and recognizing that I am not going to be so self-focused. How cool is that? He goes, really, our world's pretty self-focused. But if you want to follow me, you need to focus less on you and your needs Your focus must change from you to me. Now that alone would have been something hard. Because we all like to do our thing and and go our way and make us the most important thing on the planet, right? But Jesus says, no, my disciples think less of themselves and more of others. And of course, Jesus himself modeled this for the first two years he hung out with the guys. He continually models it all the way to the very end before he even gets crucified. And then he said this, you need to take up your cross daily. Again, it's in a a tense where it says, you keep taking up your cross. Every day, you take up your cross. You keep taking up your cross. You keep taking up your cross. Now, every one of us understand the cross, although sometimes it's nice jewelry, and sometimes we hang them in churches, we know really what Jesus is saying. It is an instrument of torture. It is extreme suffering. There is nothing that's been invented that's been so horrific to cause pain and to allow death to linger before it snatches you. He says what you need to do is take up this cross. Embrace that following me is going to be difficult. We're not talking really at this moment about normal hardships. Yeah, I mean, I get it. It snows. We have to go out a little bit early. We have to brush off our car. Oh, man, I'm suffering for Jesus going to church. It is amazing, God. I hope you notice all that I had to do to get over here. No, no, no. I'm really glad you did, but this is not suffering for Jesus. This is normal, getting your car, and whether you're going to Walmart or church, you have to brush it off. Okay? It's where we live. But there is something about following Jesus. You're treated differently. And there will be suffering. Sometimes you suffer because of other people. Sometimes you suffer because your focus is so others-focused or kingdom-focused. I can guarantee if you follow Jesus, you don't have all the money you'd like to be able to spend on yourself. You don't. You are generous, more generous. You suffer in different ways as you listen to our Lord. And the last thing is the kicker. 
It's also in the presence. It's also an imperative. It's also a command. Three things. It says, I want you to follow me. I want you to follow me. I want you to follow me. Follow me every day. You just keep following me. This is a continual thing that happens over and over again because, well, sometimes we forget that he's the leader. And sometimes we don't want to follow Jesus because he says really hard things. And sometimes we don't want to submit to Jesus because sometimes we think we're smarter than Jesus. But you have to spend time with him in order to listen, in order to obey, or in order to submit. Now Jesus wraps up this little thing. Again, three commands. You want to be a disciple, okay? You got to be less self-focused. You got to pick up your cross. Remember, embrace that following me is going to cause hardship. And lastly, you've got to admit every single day, I'm in charge. Nobody else knows you like I know you. And when I ask you to do something, I expect you to do it. And then verse 35. He says, if you try to hang on to your life, the way you're living right now, you're going to lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. If you continually go your way, if you continually rebel, well, you're going to literally lose your life. What you think will give you life won't. That's just it. Being a disciple is where it's at. Now, realistically, we have been called to be disciples and to make disciples. And sometimes we look at Jesus' words and we say, okay, well, you know, I've been a little less selfish. And, you know, I recognize, you know, that that there is hardship when you follow Jesus. And and realistically, I struggle a little bit at times, but I really know that God is God. and, and, And I'm growing even a little bit in my relationship and I'm spending some time and I'm, I'm starting to take some practical steps where I just listen to him better. That's all cool. It is. But I wonder, and please hear me out, I wonder if Jesus was speaking in this synagogue. And we finally understood what it meant to be a disciple. And we had the courage to be able to say, you know what? I'm not going to do that. I'm leaving. Because realistically, I think that's probably a pretty clear percentage of those who follow Jesus and don't. Out of about 300, 12 said, I'm all in. Now, this should shake you up just a little bit. It should. It shook me up. And so what I started to do is started to reflect just a little bit on what that actually means. I shared with you over the past few weeks that I've been reading through a book, a marriage book, which is really a life book written by Lisa and Francis Chan. It's called You and Me Forever. And in this book... One of the principles all the way through is, is that marriage is all about God refining you and using your spouse in order to build character and to help you reflect God better. You see, that's not a normal message. It just isn't. But one of the things that he talked about was what it means to follow Jesus when you parent. He said, okay, Rick, well, you can talk about that. I mean, my kids are all grown up. They're all the house. They're all... But listen to some of this. Some of you aren't even parents. I get it. But I do want to talk a little bit to parents for a moment. And the rest of us, I think, will be able to get some great blessing from it too. 
But we're all about here at Crosspoint teaching families to know, obey, and enjoy Jesus. When I had the opportunity to be able to even look at this church, and before I was called as your pastor, it was one of the things I just looked at and said, this is amazing. I mean, there's really a church out here, anywhere, that that's what they want to do. I'm excited about that. I am. And so as I look at that, what I realize, though, is that statistics show that the majority of 18-year-olds who grow up in a church walk away from the church never to return to the church. There are more 18 to 27-year-olds away from the church than any other generation. Many of them grew up in the church. And one of the reasons I ask is, why? The Bible's been presented. Scriptures have been clear. Why is it that there's this exit? I think kids are smart. And I think they learn more of what they see than what we say. You see, God has given all of us responsibilities to be able to reflect God well to others. If you have the privilege or the honor to have kids in your home, one of the main responsibilities of a mom and a dad is to be able to reflect who God is to them. All right? And we do this by modeling. Now, there are no perfect parents. I get that. I do. But our kids are smart because if you tell them that God is everything to you and that relationship is so important and they never see mom or dad develop a relationship with God, I think they know it's not that important. If parents say they want to spend time with God and submit to him in every area of the scriptures. You know what? Kids are smart. They know you only submit to certain things because you're smarter than God in other things and you don't really need to do that. And so they see something that's a little odd to them. They know if you trust in the sovereign God. They know if you talk about circumstances and how rough things are at work and how relationships are so unfair and how you pout and stomp your feet because you don't get your way. And I'm not saying you never pout or stamp your feet. But it's really different in a home where you actually trust God who's in charge of all things and has given you those bosses and given you those, well, neighbors that you wish he hadn't given you. You know, they know if your world revolves around kids, sports, academics rather than Jesus. We say, well, wouldn't the kids really like that? I bet they do. I do. But you know what's really odd is that the scriptures tell us that our lives are not to revolve around our kids. They aren't. And what happens then if, if, whoa, every decision we make and every choice we make and everything that happens, happens so that they're happy or they're fulfilled our world ought never revolve around anything other than Jesus. That's really the truth. They know if you're seeking first your kingdom or God's kingdom. They do. They know at times if you tip God every week or every once in a while you serve or if God is really so important and that other people, wow, that don't know Jesus are going to hell. 
They know how you talk about the neighbors behind their backs. And they even know how you talk about your enemies because they live with you. They know if you've had a sacrifice and gone without something because you chose to either spend time with high school kids on a retreat and you didn't get to go to that talent show of theirs. And you sit down and say, you know what? It's worth sometimes to let your daddy go somewhere else to care for kids in a different environment. You know, I remember some of the things that happened in my house bothered me as a kid. My dad loved the Lord. And they weren't perfect. But there, there wasn't any doubt that my dad and mom seeked first the kingdom of God. Numerous times, my brother and I didn't get the stuff I thought we deserved. We didn't go on the vacations that I thought kids should go on. All my dad did was think about that crazy camp. And weekends, we had to go driving up there. Because kids found Jesus. And families were changed. Your kids know if you understand the mission of God and if you are joining God in building the kingdom instead of playing games. Your kids know if you care about the under-resourced or the widow or the orphan or if you just occasionally flip a $5 bill in the offering plate. Your, dad, uh, your kids know if you love and respect your spouse, especially how you talk about them when they're not there. Your kids know if you're living as an alien, if you're sacrificially focused, if you care more about the kingdom or you care more about you. Your kids know if prayer is important. You know, my dad wasn't He wasn't so good at coming to many of my sports activities. And I could say, well, it's a generation. I knew my dad loved me. I did. I knew my dad cared. But I know one thing. 
My dad was laser focused. It was really weird. I played uh, college basketball for one year at Northeastern Illinois. And it was hard to believe the way I walk. My dad came to see one game. One game. Because my games were always being played when there were more important things to do. You know, I don't know if he always made the right choice. I was mad at him sometimes. But I can tell you one thing. My mom and my dad practiced what they preached. I knew what they gave. I knew what they sacrificed. I knew they were out of the house just about every night. Encouraging, strengthening, working with people. Say, Rick, it was just the generation. It was not just the generation. It wasn't. I hear Jesus speaking to 300 people. And they don't like what he says. And 288 walk out. And 12 say, I'm all in. 12. And then he doesn't stop. He goes, you don't even understand what this means. It means you have to be less selfish. You cannot be focused on yourself and serve me and follow me. You can't not expect to suffer. You will suffer. If you focus on what I ask you to do and follow me and listen to me, you will suffer. And honestly, oh, if you don't spend time with me and you don't listen to me, you will never, ever, ever know. how to respond to life and how not to. You see, our kids know if we're busy investing in our stuff or God's stuff. They're so good at that. And I got to believe the generation today, we're paying a price. Because we have lots of big churches and lots of talk. We have more access to the internet. We have more ability to be able to follow Jesus than we've ever done before. And yet we serve less and we give less and we have less time available for what the important is. You know, um, back in 2012, there was a haunting, a haunting Citibank advertisement. It, it was just before the Summer Olympics, and I know the Winter Olympics are coming. But I'd like to show you a 30-second clip about some athletes. And what they say to me is shocking. Can we hear that? Dave? I don't even take a morning off. I haven't ordered dessert in two years. You know that best-selling book everyone loves? I haven't read it. I haven't watched TV since last summer. Hey, I've been busy. City is proud to sponsor our dedicated U.S. athletes. I haven't missed a morning... 
I haven't watched TV since the summer. I haven't eaten dessert in two years. Why? So they could get a gold medal. I love hearing those stories. I do. But you know what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9? He says, don't you realize that in a race, everybody runs, but only one person gets the prize. So run to win. Just be disciplined. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that fades away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So Paul says, I run with purpose with every step. Every step. You know, I don't know if I would have been part of the 288. That's what's hard. If Jesus would have drawn the line in the sand there and said, Rick, this is what it involves. You need to think less of yourself. You need to recognize that suffering is going to happen if you follow me. And following me means you're not in charge anymore. You just got to listen to me. I wonder. The question is, and the question I'm going to leave is, are you going to be a disciple? I'm not talking about earning salvation. You know that. This is someone who's come to faith, someone who said, I recognize that Jesus, you died on the cross for me, you spilt your blood for me so that I might have life and experience redemption. Once that happens, a choice. Are you going to be a disciple? Let's pray. Father, uh, <laughs> this was a hard message. It was a message, God, that uh, most people didn't listen to. I'm pretty sure most people today aren't going to listen to. But we ask you, God, that you would be patient with us. You would help us be less selfish, recognize suffering is part of the call, and that we will go without and that you really are in charge. God, there is no one that has followed you that has regretted it. But there's been a whole lot of people that haven't and do. In Jesus' name, amen.